where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. How do we respond to COVID biblically and not simply pull back and say, well, whatever the state says should go. But to me, it seems that the gospel involves all areas of life and thought. And Jesus Christ himself saying, uh, came, what is the gospel of the good news? Well, what is the good news? The God in Christ and his death and resurrection is turning back all sin everywhere gradually. Not fully done, of course, until the second coming, but nonetheless gradually. Well, that is the heart of the good news. Well, we haven't really fulfilled the gospel and aren't really preaching the gospel if we're not preaching that. Michael Thiessen here, and this interview is going to be so cold and calculating that I decided to wear a toque, because today you get the privilege of listening to Dr. Andrew Sandlin, and it's great to have you on, Andrew. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Well, thanks, uh, Dr. Thiessen. I appreciate you and your ministry. I'm not quite sure that I can live up to uh, your expectations, but I'll do my best. Uh, don't believe him for a minute, everybody. He just got finished telling me that the more of my head covered, the better looking I was. So uh, you just just track with him, everybody. He's a he's a tight mind. Uh, Andrew, why don't you start by explaining to my listeners what the ministry that you're heading up, the Center for Cultural Leadership is and a little bit of the work that you guys do. I know you've got a really broad reach in the U.S., but uh, introduce this to our Canadian listeners. Uh, CCL is a 20-year-old Christian educational foundation, and uh, the short version is it's designed to influence Christians to influence our surrounding culture in distinctly Christian ways. Um, It is largely opposed to the idea that the faith can be limited to our private devotions, and our church on Sunday and our families, it really believes in the Christianization of all of life. Now, whenever I say that, uh, Michael, some people get a little worried. They think that we support some armed revolt to force unbelievers to be Christians or act, act Christianly. That's not it at all. We believe in the peaceful preaching of the gospel through the power of the Spirit and the submission to the uh, Word of God to gradually reform these sinful institutions. And that includes everything presently under the dominion of sin. I mean, that's everything from science to technology to architecture to art um, to education to music, yes, to politics. So all of these areas of life are designed to be influenced and shaped by the Christian faith. This really is simply to say that Jesus really should be Lord of all of life. We evangelicals often like to say, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. But when you kind of flesh that out and say, ah, so Jesus should be Lord of politics or Lord of art or Lord of technology, they say, well, no, we really don't mean that. But at CCL and uh, with what you're doing with Liberty Coalition, we we actually do mean that. So that's kind of a short introduction to what CCL does. I'm so glad that you articulated it with some of those words because – I want to dive into that right there. So you, you you said two words, one word, and then another phrase that's really important. So you, you you said Christianize, which is viewed so negatively by many people. And then the second thing you said fleshed out. So I'm just going to frame the discussion this way, Andrew, and, and you just spitball back. If I were sitting in a room with 100 pastors and I said, I think you should go everywhere and preach the gospel. And that means included in your message is real pastoral counsel towards repentance and the trusting of God's word. And and ultimately, of course, then faith in Christ to real issues. How many agree? And I, 
I, I feel like if I said it that way, I'd get a hundred hands go up. Oh, we should preach Jesus everywhere we go. We, we, you know, we should seek to, you know, influence people to follow the word of God. And then I go, okay, let's flesh that out. And, uh, let's flesh that out with policy B. And then, you know, the, 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 the theologians and the pastors get talking and all of a sudden one becomes a Christian nationalist and all of a sudden one becomes a, a reconstructionist and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, you know, one, one you know, one's a, one's a two kingdoms and then one's a, like, it seems like there's so much in-house arguing among pastors, Christian thinkers, and theologians that completely misses the simple point that you just said is the purpose of CCL and some of the things, and some of the things that I'm very passionate about. It seems like every Christian would go sincere, Bible believing, God fearing, Jesus saved Christian would go. Yes. I agree, Andrew, with what you said, but then we go, let's flesh it out. And it seems like the bombs go off. Like, what do you think? Can you give me some insight on the ground? You know, the, the, the bombs are, are shooting overhead. Can you give us some insight on the ground, even in the American context or the Canadian context? There's more commonality uh, than you might imagine. I do agree with you about that disagreement. But really, Michael, the issue is those who believe on the one hand that the word of God should apply in every area of culture. Um, and including the ones that I mentioned, including in policies. And on the other hand, those who believe that the word of God should basically be designed to get people converted and into the church and living a holy life personally and get into heaven when they die. That's the real divide. So I don't mind the arguments about whether you Christians should support nothing more than a 10% tax rate in a nation uh, because of statements made in the Old Testament, for instance, by Samuel warning the people of Israel, or um, what the proper method of um, execution should be in capital punishment. I am opposed to the people who say, well, the word of God doesn't really apply in those cases. We don't need to be concerned about that. So I don't mind the arguments specifically about policy, as long as we're having arguments about the fact the word of God does apply everywhere to everything in all of life. Yeah. I think the thing that I'm marveling at is if, if we were to take your first statement, word of God applies everywhere to all things of life. I, I, you wouldn't have a out of a hundred, you'd have a hundred people say, yes, I can't agree with that. I mean, I can't disagree with that based upon scripture's own statements. But then when you go to the flushing out, it's like half the room says, actually, I don't believe that. It um, it, it seems like there's all, like a, like a, on a level of unfaithfulness among pastors and Christian thinkers to just live um, a consistent Christian worldview. You've really touched on that, Michael. Um, a couple of things to say about that. One, this is really a big shift from our forefathers. Um, and in the U.S. and British context, I'm not as uh, aware or intelligent in the Canadian context, but kind of the basic Puritan background that the Bible should govern everything in all of life. And that's also true in the 19th century. And I suspect it's also true among the reformational, reformation thinkers um, uh, in Canada historically. Um, so we've really deviated away from our history in doing that. Um, and the oddity about this is that this is sort of a concession, Michael, to the secularization of the age. If you think about it, what is a secularist view? Well, Christians, if you're allowed to exist, we don't mind what you say in your church or in your private devotional life, but we don't want you dealing with issues outside those. That is areas of our secular concern, law and the courts and public education. That's all areas of our concern. Well, the sad thing is that this is sort of the uh, Christian humanist alliance. The Christians agree with many secularists on this. They say, fine, we're going to let you guys control everything outside, but we're going to control everything inside, where inside means, of course, these highly Christian institutions like the family and the church. 
uh, that, it seems to me, is, is the root of the problem. So I would desire us, Michael, to get to the point where we could argue, where we had all 100 pastors saying, yes, we agree the Bible should be applying on tax issues and on capital punishment and on issues of uh, COVID, how do we respond to COVID biblically and not simply pull back and say, well, whatever the state says should go. I, I would desire those kinds of arguments. But I would say for the most part, we're not having those arguments. Most evangelicals certainly are not having them. They believe that those of us who believe in applying the faith outside the church are kind of involved in irrelevant or secondary issues. But to me, it seems that the gospel involves all areas of life and thought. And Jesus Christ himself came, what is the gospel, the good news? Well, what is the good news? The God in Christ and his death and resurrection is turning back all sin everywhere gradually. Not fully done, of course, until the second coming, but nonetheless gradually. Well, that is the heart of the good news. Well, we haven't really fulfilled the gospel and aren't really preaching the gospel if we're not preaching that. Our federal government's response to economic difficulties is to print money until it's worthless, driving up the cost of everything, essentially stealing from your hard-earned pay. What you need is to take control of your own resources and to be responsible for your own money, which is your responsibility. Bull Bitcoin wants to help you do just that. Bull Bitcoin is a 100% self-funded, freedom-minded Canadian Bitcoin exchange that wants to protect your financial freedom and help you protect your resources. If you're at all aware of what's going on in our country... You should seriously consider connecting with my friends over at Bull Bitcoin and buying at least some Bitcoin today. Sign up at mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC and have all of your questions answered. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash lcc thanks everyone for supporting them yeah and i think i think i i think what i'm the accusation that i'm making of the room is that i think many of them believe that 50 just get out of the fight 50 get out of the conversation so they don't have to have the fight and uh i agree with you i i'd like to have 100 in the room having the fight on some really uh, detailed applications of God's word. Okay, so I'm going to transition the chat now to a conversation you and I had way back in the summer. And uh, I'm going to be honest, I haven't gone and read any of the books you told me to go read. So uh, I just haven't had the time. So I see you're well prepared, Michael, you're well prepared. (laughs) I am. (laughs) I am literally the delinquent student in this conversation. Um. But you and I got into a conversation uh, with Dr. Joe Boot, who, by the way, everybody, the Ezra Institute is uh, building into the U.S., going to be running our first uh, runner academy. Andrew, are you going to be there in Georgia? So uh, I'm planning to be there. Going to be there. So Dr. Joe Boot's coming in from the U.K. And uh, Dr. Andrew Sandlin's going to be there. I'm going to be there and a number of other fellows. Uh, So that's that's happening uh, in uh, May. So everybody go and sign up for the runner Academy. You go to the Ezra Institute uh, website and they'll, they'll be able to help you out there. Um, Andrew, this is a conversation that you and, and Joe and I were having. And, and the, the basic, the simple question is theology first or philosophy first and why? And I figure that if I just sit and listen, you're going to be able to have a good half hour response to that. So I'm okay if this is this this is you just kind of walking through some of the the thoughts that would lead you there. And and the reason for this is is because it just seems that there seems to be a lack of engagement with Christian philosophy. And so I'm trying to understand that that's the that's the heart of the question. How do we get to where we're engaging in we're not letting the secularists lead those conversations? But how should a Christian think in uh, order of magnitude or uh, order of progression? Boy, that's a great 
question, Michael, and I well remember that conversation out by, I think it was Lake Erie or Lake Ontario, one of the two. No, no, you had it, Lake Erie. It was on the northern shore of Lake Erie. Beautiful, sunny day. Yes. Um, So um, theology, uh, people understand the importance of Christian theology. You can't have the Christian faith without Christian theology. Well, theology just denotatively means the knowledge of God. But most people, when we use the term theology, mean something narrower than that. We mean basically, as Protestants, our understanding of the Word of God and how it's summarized. And when we preach well, we're, we're preaching a theology, a knowledge of God derived from the Word of God, and also secondarily, of course, from creation. Uh, Christian philosophy is broader than theology, but in my view also includes theology. Christian philosophy is just knowledge. Philosophy is basically knowledge. So my point is that uh, the Christian faith and the truth and being right with God and our hearts given to him should shape all of our knowledge and not merely our more narrowly theological knowledge. Let me put it this way. It's kind of vague what I've said thus far, nebulous. So we get up in the morning, as I did this morning, I read Philippians chapter 3, and I was deriving important biblical theology from Philippians chapter 3, for example. But when I closed my Bible and got up and thought about, well, I need to talk to Dr. Thiessen today, there are other things I need to do, I need to talk to individuals, I need to write things, I'm leaving the specifically narrow text of Scripture, though it should influence all my life, And I'm addressing broader Christian issues than those dealt with in Philippians 3 or other specific texts. Well, so the decisions I make and the knowledge I have of this world, that is Christian philosophy. And now may I introduce a third term, very related, though not identical. And it's that Christian philosophy that shapes, here's the word we use today, isn't it? The buzzword worldview. How am I viewing everything? Now, this is what's really important to understand, and I, not even many Reformed ministers understand this. It's possible to have a fairly accurate theology, but not have a fully Christian worldview. Now, uh, let, let, me give you, let, let, me give you an, let me give you an example of that. Sorry, Michael, for some reason Siri just started jumping in there. Um, and I like your voice better than hers. So... Yes. So during uh, the, uh, and I know you guys at Liberty Coalition Canada have thought a lot about this and are very courageous about it. No doubt there were a lot, in fact, I know some, of Reformed ministers who were committed to the confessions, let's say in this case, the London Baptist Confession, 1689, who would strongly say, yes, we believe in sound Reformed Baptist theology. But they were quite willing when the COVID mandates come up to say, oh, well, obviously Romans 13 says we have to obey the government. And therefore, we don't need to think about it. How does this fit into a Christian worldview? We're just going to obey and we're going to wear masks all the time or whatever. Well, in my view, it's possible for them to have, a, a, a at least formally, an accurate uh, theology. But that theology is not a part of a broader Christian philosophy and worldview. Uh, so that's why our study of the Word of God also has to be augmented by God's creational realities, His creational norms and the work of the Spirit in our heart to influence all of our thinking and acting. Because if not, what would tend to happen, Michael, is we will assume that once we have read and interpreted the Bible correctly, that everything's fine. But it's not fine. Um, That is necessary, but it's not sufficient. In addition to that, we need to have a a knowledge that is shaped by, so in everything we do in play and what we're going to watch on TV, what movies we're going to watch, our spending habits, how we're going to vote, Uh, Our view on Darwinism, our view on science. What about technology? Most of you know it's remarkable, the new technology that's available today. What is our approach to that? Well, you're not going to be able to answer that question simply by getting uh, chapter 19, uh, section 4 of the London Baptist Confession or Westminster Confession correct. Not that that's unimportant, but you have to have a broad understanding and knowledge of all of these things. So that's kind of maybe a, a helpful introduction to this topic of theology, philosophy, and worldview. Okay, so but this is the rub for me that we engaged in that conversation. And, and, and you know, I, I'm thinking of like Summit Ministries worldview curriculum by Light – it's called Light Bearers. It's a worldview curriculum that I've used to teach young adults. I think it's great. And, and this is where 
you, this is where we were trying to understand each other. And, and I feel like the last time we talked, I was missing the mark, but when we talked last and let's say we got to that part of the conversation, I would say to you then, okay, so theology is our, is our informed understanding of God and who he is and how he has revealed himself to us, which then allows me to have the framework. So a theological framework to develop specific philosophies. So if we go back to the, if we go back to the, um, if we go back to the both uh, the confessions, what the confessions would say, and then particularly Romans thirteen about Romans thirteen, the idea number one, the exegetical idea that we just submit to the government whenever they ask was absolutely no without with, with absolutely no qualifications was ridiculous on its head. And again, I would say all pastors agreed with that, but then they just wouldn't do it. But all it to say. I can understand if someone says, okay, we have to submit to the government and then, okay, we have these qualifications that we see, um, that we, we see in scripture of what that submission looks like of, we, we see in the confessions, uh, their understanding of what that looks like. And we see within church history, some examples of what that submission would look like. But now here in North America at this time, we need to rigorously think applicationally. So we're applying that theological framework to the creational world, what you're saying. And then it's like a convergence in developing a, a, an, a, a, a practical philosophy of how to behave in that moment, how we're approaching that discipline, how we're approaching those things. And so in the order of in the order of pro, of uh, progression, I would think that the theology and theological framework would come first, and then I would be able to develop applicational thinking, similar to the idea of you have morals and then you have ethics. Ethics are the 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 specific application. E ethics are the horse stall of the moral principle. Theology is the broad is the specific revelation, the framework that I need to be able to to develop a Christian philosophy. But it didn't seem that we had that same understanding. And I, I this is an area where I just am fascinated by mm -hmm. by your research. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's that's. I think you put it really well. I don't think you and I, at the end of the day, will end up in a different place. We will agree at the conclusion. I would say philosophy comes first, and let me give you an example of why. So you talked about theology and studying the Word of God, and that Word of God creating the framework for our understanding and application. But see, we have to ask a previous question. Why would we treat the Bible that way? Well, you would say, well, the Bible itself says that we need to read the Bible, and it's our authority. Well, interestingly, let's take the Roman Catholic Church. They agree. They agree that the Bible's the, inher the inerrant, infallible word of God. It should shape our thinking. But they believe that it also must be understood in the context of natural law. And they believe in a nature-grace distinction. Now, the problem with that is that's a philosophical question that influences their theology. Now, the Protestant idea, and I, I should say the consistently Protestant idea, is the one that you gave the role of scripture in being the final authority on everything and not having a coordinate authority. But once we do that, Michael, we've entered philosophical issues. The Bible doesn't specifically talk about those issues. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk about the basic idea of, here's another example. How are we to read the Bible? Do we read it in its plain sense? Should there as origin believed and some of the number of the ancient church fathers believed, are there, is there a fourfold sense of scripture? Well, the Bible doesn't say that specifically. Those are philosophical issues. At the Protestant Reformation, of course, one thing that it wasn't just salvation by grace, not just the Bible is the final authority, but most of you know that list, uh, that are listening or watching, that Luther said we've got to get back to the plain sense of Scripture. Well, I hold that view. You hold that view. But that's a philosophical view. That's a view that you bring to the Scripture itself. All I'm saying is that we have that there are philosophical issues that are addressed that shape our understanding of theology. 
That's all I'm saying. And that's why I think philosophy is broader. I guess one way of putting this, Mike, is that um, we, we never come to the Bible in a decontextualized way. Each of us has a context coming to the Word of God. Now, there is sort of like a, a spiral here. So we have our understanding of the Word of God. We read the Word of God, but then the Word of God corrects our philosophy. And then we go back to our philosophy, and it's kind of, as time goes on, we should be intellectually and theologically and worldviewishly sanctified. That's really the only point that I was wanting to make, is that you, all of us bring philosophical assumptions to our exegesis and interpretation of the Bible. We just can't pretend as though we don't have those assumptions. So no, that, that that's I good. think, is a basic under. That's good, and and it, and it's basically you know I, I actually liked your your uh, high tech uh, visual here for us. Like <laughs> I liked that. I liked the swirling effect of my philosophy of something is shaped by theology and correction. But it but I understand what you mean that that you, there is something where I have to develop a a philosophy of interpretation that I'm that I that I am able to admit and acknowledge as I as I as I approach scripture. Well I, I like that idea of the swirling issue um rather than may you know maybe just in more of a linear uh a linear mm-hmm, approach. Mm-hmm. What would you what would you call um what would you call that maybe that 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 so my philosophy of interpretation allows me to go into the text appropriately to get like a universal principle what 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 would you call the applicational sphere in in, in this would you call it the applicational sphere like what what would you kind of call that where now we're arguing specific policies yeah, so that's a good question. I think that that is based squarely, should be based squarely on revelation. And by the way, that's a philosophical assumption that I brought to the deck. So, uh, yeah, we have to argue about. So, we know the Bible doesn't specifically address a lot of issues. It doesn't specifically address a particular tax policy, for example. Uh, it doesn't specifically address the reach of the civil government, like in Romans thirteen. So we have to create a theology by reading the rest of the Bible, and also in terms of, of course, God's creational norms, which themselves are laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. But you're right. The application is looking at the text of Scripture and finding biblical principles and truths that are not explicit. Of course, if they're explicit, we don't have to argue at all, do we? I mean, the Bible supports capital punishment, for example, depending on one's hermeneutics. Um, so we derive these uh, second order principles by a reflection on the word of God. And that's where the application comes in. I agree with you entirely. We don't want to be arguing the application of the Christian faith apart from the Bible. That's our difference with Roman Catholicism. Uh, Rome has a view of the nature grace distinction and believes a high view of natural law. And they say, well, the Bible's really good for the church, and the Bible's good for hearing the gospel, which we don't agree with them on that, but from their standpoint. But outside the church, you know, all of us have this sort of natural um, understanding that's not been so impaired by sin that we and unbelievers can, can't agree. We can all agree according to natural law. Well, as Protestants, we don't agree with that because we believe the Bible teaches differently. But they have different philosophical assumptions about the scripture and the role of scripture than we do. So as a Protestant, we have to be arguing on the basis of the Bible. Hey friends, I'm happy to talk to you again about Rocklink Investment Partners. With inflation at 40 year highs and economic stagflation on the horizon, growing and preserving your hard earned capital is of utmost importance. I know it's on my mind. And that's why Rocklink Investment Partners are so essential because they understand the investment challenges of today. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused solely on creating portfolios of high quality businesses anchored to the time tested principles of value investing. And they do not shy away from essential businesses that do not meet the world economics forms definition of ESG. 
So email rocklink at info at rocklink.com. That's rocklink with a C or visit them at www.rocklink.com. And again, that's link with a C. Okay. This is a good, this is a good place to, to dig in again, because you've brought up the, the Catholics and yet I would uh, not, and yet, and also I, I would hear these things this dualistic idea really resonating in evangelicalism and Protestantism. Like, like we, you and I've both literally heard within the last month of somebody saying, you can't hold non-Christians to the same standards. Uh, I don't know what is going on with Andy Stanley, but he, he, he literally, you know, just recently again, talked about, you know, these are family rules. They're not, they're not family rules. Like they, it, it's a, um, so he, let, let's try to dig in this in, in, in a minute. Uh, in this, here's, here's the framing. It's almost like a young man's, it's almost like the world is being led by teenage premises. And, and here's what I mean by this. When I was a young man, I knew what God's word said about it. I knew what I could observe, but there was always like this secret distrust of God's word. Like, yeah, I know that God's word said it. And I know that creation reflects and and parallels God's word, but everybody else out here is saying it can be done that way. And, and you, then you just get to a certain, as you, as you get older, there, you be, you just learn that no matter how many times I I try to pretend like there are different rules out there that can be found, it, all of the same rules apply. Yes. So now, okay. Here's here's where we're here's my where my question comes, uh, Doctor Salen. It it seems so common sense, so obvious, so plain of day that scripture and creational norms and, and, and can we say natural law with that, that without that being an awful thing, like it, yeah, if we qualify I, it as Christian, if you qualify norm? it, if we, if, if, if we buy natural law, we mean God's norms of creation that yep. are never intentionally severed from the Bible in Christ. Absolutely. That's no problem. Okay. So what it seems just so obvious that they're harmonious. What is the temptation of Christians to choose methodology to choose you know, applicational philosophies that that's that that are based on like human imagination, human exploration, yes. human perversion. It, it seems that the church just gets tempted away by this all the time. Why do you see that as 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 an issue? Uh, boy, Michael, you're no wonder you're a great interviewer. That's a great question. Well, the first thing to say is it's been happening a long time. Uh, think even of ancient Israel, uh, the Old Testament, Old Covenant Church, if we may call them that. What was the temptation constantly? Acting like the nations around them, thinking like the nations around them. But then you come into the sub-apostolic church, and anyone that's studied knows the problem with the church fathers. They're not infallible because uh, many of them, not all, tended to Im- incorporate sort of the pagan Greek philosophy into their thinking. So here we have the Bible, which the yes, they agree is authoritative. But yes, you know, we need to import some of this Greek philosophy to help us understand the Bible, which really is a form of worldliness. Then, of course, you come down to the 19th century and you have liberalism. That's the same thing. And then what you're talking about today, modern evangelicalism is rife with that. Why are we constantly wanting to seek approval of the world, approval of these neutral, critical methodologies in reading the Bible, giving in to Darwinism? Uh, giving in to statism. What is the temptation? Well, it is actually simple depravity, the desire to be accepted by the world. And it's a perpetual battle. 
Incidentally, Michael, and this is where I, uh, let me just mention CCL again, and of course it's true of Ezra Liberty Coalition and so on. This, and, and I hope it doesn't sound self-serving, but this is why I believe our work is so important. When you have this surrounding culture that is very sinful, that becomes normative. That becomes what you probably heard and your listeners have heard is the plausibility structure. It becomes normal and everything that Christians believe, Orthodox, Bible-believing Christians believe is weird, strange. You guys are like nutty. When actually it's this evil perversion around us that is nutty. It just doesn't seem nutty. It seems normal because so many people hold it. That's why those of us that believe in influencing culture want to get to a point where what is presently this depravity surrounding us is seen to be very nutty because it gets smaller and nuttier. That's the advantage of a Christian culture. Not that it's perfect. Not that it's perfect. Not that there isn't sin. Not that there isn't error. But that this, this, what is today the pervasive depravity and all of these false ideologies are pushed into a corner more and more. So Christians say, man, that stuff really is weird. How could people have believed, for example, that it was all right to murder a baby in the womb? How could people have believed that? How could people have once believed that a man could be a woman? That's utter madness. Now, today, for us to say what the Bible says, we're considered insane, or we're considered odd and bizarre, but we know they, their view is bizarre. Well, this is why we press for Christian a Christianization and Christian culture, so that these things will be in the distinct minority. Again, not through guns and bombs and so on, but by the power of the Spirit of God. But I will say this, Mike, and I'd like to end... Uh, this point on this, as long as Christians say, just as long as we have our church, just as long as we have our Christian family, we're not going to worry about what's going on out there. They don't understand that what's going on out there is infecting their thinking at every point. At every point. They think they can protect their thinking. But as long as there is this battle, there is always going to be the temptation. And though we can never get rid of the temptation totally until Christ returns, we need to reduce the temptation by the preaching of the gospel. And that, I see, is the great value in ministries like CCL and Ezra and Liberty Coalition. I love how you articulated that. And to articulate it on the positive side, the more we influence and Christianize, the, the better our Christian thinking and application will actually be. If, if, if I'm told you're not allowed to put together that puzzle, then my puzzle making skills aren't actually going to be that great. So, so if I'm told don't engage and then I believe don't engage and then I don't engage, I, I live a life and I don't engage. And so I don't, I don't, I don't make puzzles, but if, if you grew up in a home where you've been told make puzzles, make puzzles, make, you get good at it. And so if, if we apply Christian thought because we've influenced the public sphere because we've persuaded with the gospel and the word of the Lord, then actually our Christian mind gets stronger and better. Some people say, why can't Christians solve anything? Well, you know what? Give us some time and some freedom to do it and the ability to follow our lead, and we'll actually produce great solutions. Uh, Andrew, you brought up the Old Testament, and it, this is kind of where the nature of the question was coming from, because this morning I read N Numbers 14, and I was in Numbers 13 yesterday, and I'm just kind of going through. And, of course, that's the spies going to the land, and mm -hmm. 12 spies come back, and uh, uh, Caleb, uh, uh, Joseph and Caleb give the positive report. No one else does. And um, it's interesting because this is where I was getting at with this question of why are we so tempted. God said go into the promised land. They go through the land and you listen to the first report and it's as if it's a totally different report but we know that it is utterly inaccurate that the second report is actually the accurate report but it was the faith that determined the perspective and so when i'm asking the question why are we so tempted it I, i'm I'm also cognizant of the answer is that we're so tempted partly because we have a tendency to trust humans over the Lord himself. Yes. And then I was thinking about that very notion when you were saying that, Michael, think about Joshua and Judges. Now we can understand better those statements when Jehovah said, when you enter the land, make sure you expel these pagans, because if not, you will learn their ways. Think about that. You will learn their ways. 
And that will, of course, draw the people to idolatry and to violation of God's law. Well, what's he saying there? He's saying if they are readily available to you, if that culture is surrounding you and you have very close contact with it, that's going to have a negative impact on you. I mention this often when we parents ask me, parents of small children or teenagers, is it harder today to rear godly children than it was 50 years ago? I said, absolutely. Not that it was perfect then, but if you'll think about it, back then there were at least a few disincentives to disobedience and unrighteousness. But think about it this way. When your child walks out of your house every day, almost everything he or she encounters, almost everything is at war with almost everything you and your wife believe and teach. You see, in a more Christian culture, it's not that that's going to cause them to be Christians. You're, they trust Christ, that you become a Christian by trusting Christ for salvation. Nonetheless, it creates a cultural environment that creates incentives for obedience and disincentives for rebellion and disobedience. Today, that situation is reversed. That right there is an objective for Christianizing culture. I'm so glad that the conversation has gone this way because people, number one, you just led right back into my very first point that it seems like an, a young man's faith versus an old man's faith. A young man's faith looks at that command and says, purge, purge the land of the people. And he says, oh, those innocent people, how, how could you be so hard on that? And the old man goes, have you have you lived through a second world war? Like people, right. if there's a group of people that are awful, awful you know, bad character, corrupt, uh, bad company corrupts good character. And 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 the older you go along, the, the, the more damnable humanity really is for what it is because you've experienced it. And we need to get back to that old soul Christianity. We get need to get back to that historically rooted, uh, deep, deeply, deeply historical and deeply philosophical Christianity that's willing to yeah. say things as they are. Okay, I know we only have a few minutes left. Um, I'm gonna give you uh, an opportunity to help me, and and here's the help. So you gave me a, a kind compliment earlier, saying that I was a good interviewer, and I appreciate that, Andrew. And um. But here's but there's an interview that I feel like I botched that I really struggled with. And everybody can go listen to it. It's up. It's an interview that I did with Dr. Wayne Grudem. And um, so uh, Dr. Sandlin, it, it, I'm not trying to pit you against him and I'm not trying to get you into any type of trouble with him. But I, I felt like there was something left on the table that I struggled with when I was interviewing him. And if you. I'd like you to kind of help me and my listeners if you're willing. So here, here it is. Mm -hmm. I, I asked Dr. Grudem, I said, look, I've read your book on your 1500 page book on politics, politics, according to the Bible. I agree with everything you've said, except for three paragraphs. And in three paragraphs, there's only three paragraphs. And each time that I disagree with you, it's simply when you make a whole bunch of great statements. And at the end of a chapter, you take a moment or a paragraph to say, but I'm not theonomic. Um, he does, he does it, he does it twice where he specifically says it. And then in a third time he does it inferentially. And I just said to him, why I read your book and I felt like you and I agree with everything. So therefore I think you're a theon the theonomic. You read your book and you say, well, I'm, I'm broadly third rule reformational, you know, the, this, the civil, the civil application of, of the law. Why did you need to separate it? And his response to me was because I don't want to force people to be converted. <laughs> and yeah, the, that, that's just, go ahead. Well, okay. I'm going to let you respond to it. I'm just going to say the reason why yeah. I feel like the interview didn't, didn't, it took me a while to get my, my feet back under me is because that is, Never an understanding that I read of applying God's uh, word and God's law through all of scripture. So it seems that there is a notion out there that if we were to um, – we were try to deter people from blaspheming, like simple things like saying, God bless America when I'm a raving pagan, when I'm a ra raving atheist or something like that. Where, where we, we, we would like to see that discouraged socially, that that equates to a compelled speech or a compelled conversion. 
Anyway, the response came. It caught me so off guard. I didn't feel like I recovered in that interview very well. Can you help my listeners? If if you had have had that, what would you have what would you have said? Well, I mean, uh, I uh, know theonomy inside and out. Know its uh, practitioners and my help myself, of course, have a very high view of God's law and all my writings. I can assure you, no theonomist. And not Greg Bonson, not Rich Dooney, not anybody would have ever dreamed of saying that the role of the law as to uh, so civil law is the, the its imposition to convert people. Uh, I, Wayne Grudem is a very gifted man intellectually. So the fact that if he made that statement, and I'm not doubting he did, shows he just he's not acquainted with the literature, apparently, or he's forgotten or something. All they were wanting to say is that God's law should apply in all of life, including civil law, in an appropriate way. In an appropriate way, the, the role of the role of the civil law is not to make anyone good, but to keep people from being as bad as they otherwise would be. The role of the law of God in society is a negative role. We do have a name for societies in which the politicians lose law, use law to try to make people good. They're called totalitarianisms. That's what Marx wanted to do. That's what Hitler wanted to do. They wanted to use the law to make a particular kind of people. But in the Bible, to the extent we can, we make a particular kind of people by preaching the gospel, by training children in the faith, by starting strong churches. And the role of the civil magistrate as the law is to protect, well, in American context, we would say life, liberty, and uh, property, to protect against uh, murder and rape and theft and uh, certain specific public sins, and I think it's vital to understand that in the Bible, most sins are not crimes. Just because the Bible forbids something doesn't mean it should be a crime. A good example is the Tenth Commandment. I mean, the Tenth Commandment against covetousness is a very important commandment, but the civil magistrate should not and could not enforce that. And other, and other aspects of them, aspects of stealing property, you bet he can enforce that, but not stealing people's time, not stealing other things. So the point I'm making, Michael, is that idea just betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of what theonomists would say about the law and what the Bible itself would teach about the law. The role of the civil magistrate, according to Romans 13, is not to make people good citizens. It is to suppress evil, to be a terror to evildoers, that is, who are committing specifically evil external acts. It's not to make people better. Only the Holy Spirit can do that by the preaching of the gospel. That's a vital distinction to make. And I would think that, again, we, we talk about the room of, of 100 pastors. I, I'd say, well, you know, you talk about the latter six, ten commandments, and they'd go, yeah, 100 out of 100. And then you go, okay, so so are there civil – is there a civil application of the first four commandments? And that's where you would kind of get into all of these types of theories and maybe – accusations, not the right word, but false assumptions – can you talk about the first four commandments for us a little bit? And and I actually I know that I know that I know that Joe's actually going to do something on the on the Ten Commandments over on the Ezra podcast, and I'm going to be on that uh, coming up. So this is you're helping me do some cheat notes because uh, yeah. Uh, so that was a hotly disputed issue, not just recently, but uh, in the 17th and 18th century uh, in the U.S. among American Presbyterians. Uh, because their view is that, and I tend to be sympathetic to this, that while the moral law of God, including the civil law uh, given to Israel, is eternal, there can be no uh, society, uh, no country that can reproduce Israel as being the covenant to people of God as Israel was. And I, I do think that some of the those that came to the U.S. Jurors first didn't understand that. They saw themselves as the new Israel. Uh, that's not necessary. In the Bible, the new Israel is the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. To say that, however, is not to say that the moral law of God should not apply. So the question really, it gets down specific issues. Well, uh, should should Satanists be permitted to sacrifice children? and if, Or anybody permitted to sacrifice children? The answer is no. Should you be permitted to have, should, should um, Muslims be permitted to practice their faith in a Christian society? or legitimate, any legitimate society according to the law of God. So those are sticky issues. In my view, they would be permitted to do so be, simply because in 
because we cannot reproduce a theocracy, but reproduce the moral law of God inherent in the theocracy, that might be permitted. And in my view, it would be permitted because the real change doesn't come through the imposition of what you would have in a covenanted Christian society, but rather in a Christianized society. And those two are not the same thing. People sometimes say, well, what you guys are trying to do is establish the theocracy. Well, actually, Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. No current state is a theocracy like Israel, but that doesn't mean that God's moral law doesn't apply. So there are some people that believe in establishing uh, in, that, that the U.S. should be covenanted just like the Jews were. I think that was done away with in AD 70. But those are all some of those applications you're talking about. Yeah, so we... So we definitely need more deeper dialogue on all of mm -hmm. these topics rather than less. And I'm thankful that you've come and taken your time. Uh, Dr. Sandlin, I know that uh, you've got a hard stop and we've kind of already gone over that. So thank you for being on, everybody. These topics are essential. They're important. Uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, get better you know, if you, Christians, if you, if you want to get better in society, you don't withdraw from it. You participate more bringing your scriptural understanding, bringing your Christian worldview, and you will, just like a toddler learns how to walk, you'll become uh, a far more effective culture uh, shaper, a leader, wherever you are, business, law, where, wherever you are, if you engage more in these thoughts rather than less and then and, and just and just step away and step away. So yeah. Andrew, thank you for all of your work over at the Center for Cultural Leadership. We appreciate it. Speaking you. of that, Michael, can yep. I jump in real quick? Give me, I, the, the stop is not so hard. Could I just mention CCL's uh, some data about where people can get more information? Would that be all right? Yes, for a small fee, that would be fine. Just uh, you'll have to tr you'll just have to take me <laughs> out for a call. I'll send the Liberty Coalition a, do a donation. So. <laughs> Yeah, so it's christianculture.com, christianculture.com, and you can read my blog at docsandlin.com. And also you can sign up for my weekly uh, e-letter at Substack, just Sandlin, uh, P. Andrew Sandlin at Substack, Culture Change it's called. And you can get at my books, all of them, uh, almost all of them on um, Amazon, both digital and hard copy and YouTube channel. And I'll stop there. There's more stuff. But thanks for allowing me to say that, Michael. No, you're very welcome. And again, everybody, would you please share this video? Get other Christians thinking. Uh, get other non-Christians thinking. Let them listen to into this dialogue because they need to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want our we want our countries to realign with a Christian worldview for the betterment of all in society. So again, thanks for coming on, Andrew. Everybody listen, share, give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcast or watch this video. We're glad to uh, provide this service to you of me asking a bunch of uh, good people, good questions. So thanks, everybody. Godspeed. God bless you, Michael. Okay, Andrew, so just wait unless you're – are y'all – are y'all – 